Father, prepare your people to hear your word. So often we come to stories we've heard so many times and studied perhaps on our own in many cases, ready to hear the same thing again. And where the same thing is the truth, then so be it. But prepare us, Father, to hear something new in that we would hear you speaking to us about what it is you would like us to understand and to do differently and to think differently so that we may grow through what we learned this morning. And prepare our hearts and ears, Father, for that. And in the way you work in our hearts, Father, I pray we would also see an opportunity to speak to others differently about what we learn, to use what we have in the purposes of the kingdom. That's always our concern. That's always our desire, Father, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers. And we ask these things, trusting in you, Father, to deliver the message through your spirit and praying in your son's name. Amen. Genesis 14. How many of you have on your car one of those fish signs, the Christian fish sign, or maybe a bumper sticker? I bought a car one time that had one of those fish, and I have to tell you that I'm embarrassed to admit, but one of the first things I did was take that off my car. But, of course, you know why, right? Because of the way I drive. That's right. There's a story of a man who was being tailgated by a lady who was busy and wanted to get somewhere quickly, and he was not driving as fast as she would like. And as the light in front of him turns yellow, he doesn't do what what most of us do. Remember, what does yellow mean? Floor it, right? So this person decides to do the right thing and stops, and that just makes the lady in back of him all the more upset because she was determined to get through that light. And as he's sitting there at this light waiting for it to turn, she's in the car behind him just going nuts just honking on the horn and trying to get his attention so that she can make an obscene gesture to him through the window and yell words out the window at him, and she's just having a conniption fit behind him. And in the middle of this rant, she hears a tap on her window, and as she looks to the left, there's a policeman right there. Now, he had been behind her, and the whole time she hadn't even noticed it because she had been too busy looking at the guy in front of him. And he comes up to the car and tells her to get out of the car. She, in the middle of the intersection, she doesn't know what's going on. She gets up, gets out. He puts her up against the car and handcuffs her and starts leading her back to the vehicle and sets her down in the back of the vehicle. And she, at this point, she's totally forgotten about the guy in front of her. She's trying to figure out what happened. Why am I being arrested? And he spends some time talking to the driver in front and eventually lets him go and then comes back and gets into the car with her. And she's immediately trying to figure out, what am I doing in this car? Why did you do this to me? And he looks at her and he says, well, I'm very sorry, lady, but I'm going to have to let you go. It was my mistake. Uh, and she's now very mad and says, what are you talking about? Why did you do this? And he proceeds to say, well, I pulled up behind you just as I saw you beginning to do all these rude things, gestures and words and screaming fit and honking and so on. And as I was looking at you, I noticed that on the back of the vehicle that you're driving, you had the fish on one side and you had the choose life bumper sticker over here and another one that said, what would Jesus do over there? And then you had the... Uh, Follow me to Sunday school one on the other side. And after I read all of those, I assumed that you must have stolen this car. (laughs) I took that fish right off my car. We do broadcast our identity to the world, truthfully. Whether for better or worse, we broadcast a certain identity. And the world expects us to act accordingly. So if our identity is we are Christian 
then when our behavior doesn't line up with that identity, like the joke goes, they don't know whether we're truly who we say we are or not. Never mind the fact that it gives them a confused understanding of what it means to be this thing we claim to be. Abram, to turn into the story for the morning in chapter 14, Abram, we've already learned from previous weeks, he had gained a reputation in his culture in that day. And that reputation has now led him and led the city of Sodom and this refugee we learned last week to come looking for Abram for rescue as the city was taken captive by these kings. It was his reputation. It was as if he had that little Christian fish thing on the back of his camel so that wherever he went, people saw him as somebody who stood out, somebody with a different identity. He was a Hebrew, which was a term that said, not of our culture, not of us. And the folks that know us and know of us as Christians, they know our values sometimes better than we do ourselves. And in times of distress, we can become their refuge. How many of you know this experience firsthand where a friend, some associate of yours, someone you know, has gone through a traumatic event in their life and they reach out to you because you're the one who seems to have some inner peace, some inner understanding, some compass, something that's different and seems hopeful in contrast to the experience they're having and in contrast to what the world seems to offer as a solution. You're the person they run to. I think that is the direct comparison to a refugee of Sodom running to Abram for the help that that person needed. And that's how God will often use us to reach the lost. We become that refuge when that person needs somebody. So what a terrible shame it is that we should ever fail to live up to that and fall into some lesser state, some lesser form of distinction and lose the chance to be that light in the world, to be that person, that refuge, that rescuer, if you will, that God works through. Not, not that it's our power, of course, but that God uses. And in times when we choose to blend into the world rather than stand out, which would be what Lot has done in choosing Sodom, we forfeit our credibility. We forfeit the claim to have a better answer and a better hope than the world because we just look like the world. So that's where we ended. That explains why in the course of the story of the four kings who come and attack the five kings in the land of Canaan, that's why the attack here has left Lot a captive with the rest of Sodom and on the other hand now leaves Abram as the one who has to come to the rescue. Because one man made a compromise with the world and became part of what they got wrapped up in and the other man stood apart and became a solution. There's going to be a total of three crises in Abram's life related to Lot. This one is the second one. Remember the first one? When their herds were competing and they had to separate? That was the first crisis brought upon Abram because he brought Lot into the land. This is the second crisis. Abram having to come to Lot's rescue. There will be a third one soon. Last week, we noticed the refugee coming, telling him of the city's capture, trying to get Abram to come in and support and, and rescue And that's precisely what Abram will do this morning. Let's look at verse 14 where we left off and see how Abram responds to the news. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, 
and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So here's Abram riding to the rescue as cavalry, supporting his nephew Lot. You know, even though Lot's caused a lot of trouble and is still causing trouble just by virtue of his being in the land, he's still family. And that's how it works, isn't it? He's still family. So Abram doesn't hesitate. He doesn't pause. He steps right in and he comes to the rescue. In fact, if we look at it as a picture then we should be eternally thankful that Abram responds in the way he does here because his behavior forms a picture of how the father responds to his children. Lot, we know, is a righteous man. And Abram here then can be understood to be a man who pictures our father in heaven. You probably already knew that, that Father Abraham can sometimes be a picture of the father in heaven. And if I take those two facts together in this account, I find this beautiful picture of a father, of the father, in hot pursuit of his relatives, or his children, as we would say today, those who he calls his children, in such a way that this picture makes us remember that statement Paul makes in 1 Timothy about even though we are faithless, he is yet faithful because he cannot deny himself. God cannot forsake us because his spirit lives in us and therefore he cannot turn his back on us so that even when we are acting faithlessly like Lot did, let's say, a man who preferred the world to God. And that's really a way you could sum up every disobedient child of God, preferring the world in some sense to God. That person, God will not forsake. And like Abram, he's in hot pursuit. So whenever you see the world carry somebody away into the temptations of sin or the enemy's schemes, etc., remember this, the love of the father for his children compels him to pursue us. And that is good news. And we can take great comfort knowing that he is far stronger than the world or the enemy in that pursuit. And in this case, in the story of Abram, he pursues, we're told, as far as Dan. Now, Dan's not a name of one of the kings, it was a location, but he pursues as far as the city of Dan, That's a long pursuit. If you look at the map from where it starts, that's 125 miles. Abram walks with his troops, with his force, before he ever gets into battle. Dan here refers, by the way, to the northernmost city of Israel, formerly called Laish. It became Dan long after Moses' death. So you might wonder in this description here, how did he know to identify that place as Dan When at the time he wrote this, it wasn't called Dan, it was called Laish. Well, that would likely mean that somebody later who was a scribe, the ones who were charged with recording these words and copying them and distributing them over the history of the nation of Israel, one of those scribes, when the city had changed from Laish to Dan, they started calling it Dan as they transcribed it. But that makes perfect sense. When the name had changed, now they wanted to change the name to reflect its current name for the sake of its readers. But it's the same city either way. It's just a name change that took place. So Abram's pursuit here is a great picture of just how far the Lord will go in pursuit of us. But it also has another dimension. It's an example of how long he will pursue us. How long did this take? How many days? Or longer? Weeks? Because as he's moving, they're moving. He eventually catches up with them. But during that time, can you imagine what Lot must have been thinking? The one who was lost? 
the one who had been taken up into the schemes of the enemy, so to speak, the one who had been taken away by the world, as they're in the midst of that trial, as Lot was fearing for his family and himself, what did he think? Did he wonder? Did he wonder, is Abram coming? Does he even know? Like we might ask ourselves, does God care? Does he even know? Is he even trying? Did he assume that maybe he had gone so far, they had taken him out of the land so far away now that Abram considered him lost? He was just too far away. Like we might say ourselves. Maybe that person is too far now. They've gone too far. God won't bring them back. This is a good story to remember in moments when we pray for someone we care about who is carried away in some way, in some sense, by the world. And while we wonder, I'm sure at times, if that person is just out of God's reach or God's not even trying, just remember Lot. Just remember what Lot must have been thinking. And yet the whole time Lot was in that mindset, Abram was moving closer and closer, bringing an army. And in the middle of the night, as we're told, when things were not only literally the darkest, but perhaps spiritually speaking, they must have felt like all hope was lost. That was the moment when Father Abraham appeared and defeated the enemy. That's, I think, where we get sayings like, it's darkest before the dawn. It's when our hope is down at the bottom, because that's what hope tends to do, leak out. But according to Scripture, the hope in God shouldn't change. We're not hoping because he's timely in our sense of the word. We're hoping because he's faithful in his sense of the word. He keeps his word. Now, Abram, we're told in the story, wins victory. And the victory is remarkable for at least two reasons. Speaking from the text, first, we're told he takes a force of 318 men, all born in his household. That means these are men that would have been children of servants and the natural growth of his family, of his larger household family. But that would tell us they're probably not professional. This is not a particularly well-skilled group of fighting men, more than likely. Now, we don't have a number in Scripture for how big the other force was, how big the kings had their forces, but it's a safe assumption that if four invading kings take the time to go all the way into another territory where there are five kingdoms that they plan to defeat, they probably brought many times more men than the ones that Abram has. Thousands and thousands of men would be a typical expectation for what they're trying to do. So it's surprising. In fact, it's unbelievable that Abram was able to take a mere 318 men trained in his own house, not a professional force, and defeat an army of thousands of trained men. And then secondly, Abram takes this hugely disadvantaged force and he divides it. In verse 15, he divides it. Conventional military thinking will tell you that you would never divide a smaller force facing a larger force. You're already disadvantaged. Don't take your, your small force and make it even smaller. That's a very foolish, very risky move, unlikely to ever work. But Abram divides his forces anyway, and he attacks at night. And the result is a rout. He drives them, according to the map, another 40 miles after the fighting starts. He doesn't just destroy them. He chases them for 40 miles. That's at least several days of just ongoing fighting and chasing. It's a rout. Some have wondered why Abram bothered the pursuit. Isn't it enough to just defeat them? Well, the only logical reason I have for why he would have pursued them is he hadn't rescued Lot. The battles had gone his way, but he had not yet achieved his objective. He hadn't found and rescued Lot. So he kept going and kept going and kept going until he found what he was come for. Here's another encouraging parallel, by the way, in the way our Father fights 
for his children. He fights and he pursues until he has reclaimed what belongs to him. Sometimes it's like the prodigal son. Sometimes that fight, that pursuit, that waiting, that never giving up hope will lead to a successful reuniting, a successful coming back to the Father while we are all still here to see it happen and rejoice in it. And that's what we pray for. But sometimes our Father wins in the end, in the way that His promises for eternal life and for a kingdom will be met in that person's death, even if we don't see that reconciliation in their physical life. We all hope for something soon, but we all rest in something eternal. Now, the fact that Abram fights here with only 318 men, and then he divides that force and yet still manages to rout a powerful army. It's amazing, but it's more than that. It's a miracle. And God clearly delivers this victory. I think that's the whole point. This is similar to Gideon with the 300. The whole idea is to take the force and number it in the Scripture so that we would leave this story with a very clear understanding that this was not some military victory. This was a spiritual victory. This was God showing up to defeat another army. And you can be sure that God not only makes it clear to us, he makes it clear to Abram. Because the next thing we see in the passage this morning is Abram displaying thanks to God, recognizing God's victory. Look at verse 17. Then, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. Now the point of the story changes. It becomes a story of two kings. Before, it was a story, in a sense, of two groups of kings. But now it's become a story of just two men. And more specifically, how Abram responds differently to two kings who approach him in the valley of Sheva in the land of Canaan. First, Abram here is returning to his home, we're told, having defeated the armies. And he's bringing back with him the spoils of war, which in this case is not only Lot and his family, the main thing he went for, of course, but everything that those kings themselves, the kings of Chedorlaomer, had captured as they went rampaging through the land of Canaan, first down the eastern side of the River Jordan, and then remember they turned north and they came up through the middle of Canaan and so on. As they went through that rampage, they captured town after town and they would have collected the spoils of war, the wealth of those cities, the cattle, the servants, the people themselves in some cases, uh, anything of value. Can you imagine the size of what they had as they left the land? Again, it goes to the miracle of a defeat by 318 guys. Now they're bringing that back. Abram's bringing all of that back. So he has this huge mass of booty, as the term goes, the spoils of war, and he's walking back to his home in Horeb. And as he comes, he's met by a new king. Now we know it's a new king of Sodom because we were already told that the original king fled from the approaching armies and he fell into a tar pit, remember? Into those molasses-like tar pits. And he died. So there is now a new man claiming authority over the city of Sodom. It very well could have been one of those other kings that escaped into the mountains. 
or it may just have been a relative of the man who died. We don't know. It really doesn't matter. But this king has a problem. And for kings, it's a big problem. Because he's a king over the city of Sodom, but the city of Sodom has no people in it. So he's a king without a kingdom. And who has his people? Abram. He now has them. They're now his. He literally, by the rules of that day, he owned what he took in the course of that battle. So he has rights, privileges, ownership rights over all the people and all the goods. So this king now recognizes that unless he's able to take the people of Sodom away from Abram and bring them back to the city, he's got no kingdom. And remember, just like it is today, what gives somebody authority is their ability to make other people work for them. So in the case of a king, it would be the ability to collect taxes off of the income and off of the commerce of that city, which can only happen if there's people in it. So claiming to be king over an empty city doesn't hold much appeal, so he travels 80 miles from Sodom to where he meets Abram in this valley of Sheva. Now the valley he's in here is the valley that lies between the old city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. So if you leave the east gate of the old city of Jerusalem, you walk down a little incline, a hill, you reach a little valley, and then you come up the other side, you're on the Mount of Olives. That valley is the valley he's standing in right now. Literally, Abram and this scene takes place in the space between the Mount of Olives and the old city of Jerusalem before it was called those things. And he may have been rich already, but for Abram, this booty, this hall, would have made him undoubtedly the most powerful man in Canaan. This would have set him up as king of Canaan, potentially, for all that he now has at his disposal. That explains, I think, why the king traveled so far from Sodom, because he's assuming this is Abram's intent to hold on to it all and he's trying to get up to Abram as fast as he can and try to change his mind now that's the first king the king of Sodom the new king of Sodom secondly we're told Abram is met by another king the king of Salem now Salem is an ancient word for peace it literally just means that peace and it's the original name of Jerusalem the city Jerusalem is still called Salem at one point in the psalm psalm 76 1 God is known in Judah His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also in Zion. Those are all synonyms. Zion, Salem, Jerusalem. So this is the man who is the king of the city of Salem or ancient Jerusalem. Remember where this takes place, right? Right outside the city walls. His name, we're told, is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an ancient Jebusite name meaning king of righteousness. He is also described here as a priest of the Most High God. Now, this is the first mention of priests in the Bible. And he brings out bread and wine for Abram. The priest, the king there, blesses Abram, and in doing so, he further demonstrates his superiority. The the scripture says that the greater blesses the lesser, not the other way around. And the priest in that blessing acknowledges that the source of Abram's victory was God. God was the one who did it. And to this, Abram responds in thanks by tithing or giving a tenth of the spoils of war back to this priest. That shows you something about the relationship. Abram wants to thank God. So where does he take his thanks? To the representative of God in his world, which was this priest that God had set up for him. So if the victory comes from God, then Abram sees fit to give back tithes of thanks to the one who gave him the victory. Now, Before we examine the contrast of these two kings, I want you to consider who this second king is, specifically. 
The letter to Hebrews is the definitive New Testament commentary on this person, Melchizedek. You find that in chapter 7. There's a lot there we could read, but for time I'm only going to read the first three verses of that chapter. Let's see what the writer of Hebrews has to say about this man, Melchizedek. Verse 1, he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram, or Abraham, as he was returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was, first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So the writer of Hebrews here notes that the first priest mentioned in Scripture is Melchizedek. And in fact, he's so important a man, whoever this Melchizedek was, that Abram actually chose to tithe to him out of the spoils of the war that he just engaged in which would tell us that Abram saw this man as a greater authority in matters of God. In, in, in matters of the living God, this man had authority more than Abram did, in Abram's eyes. He was, you could say, Abram's priest, Abram's intercessor. And Abram wasn't, therefore, the only one in the land who knew and followed the living God. If you've fallen into that thinking, and it's easy to do, actually, at this point in the narrative, of Abram, you begin to think it's Abram versus the world. That, that God's work in this world, in this day, has come down to just Abram for the time being. But Melchizedek tells us that's not true. There were others in the land who knew the living God. In fact, in the case of Melchizedek, a man who was even more important than Abram in spiritual matters. God didn't select Abram as his priest, he selected Melchizedek. A man, a king, to serve as priest for the sake of Abram. Now, the writer of Hebrews notes some things about how Moses treats this man, Melchizedek, in the Scripture. Look what he says about him. He says, number one, Melchizedek is never given a genealogy in the text. We've just seen him appear. I mean, think about all the genealogy chapters we've seen so far in Genesis and how careful, how methodical, how determined Moses has been to make sure we never lose sight of how the promise is moving from Adam and Eve through the lines of men. So that when God finally works that promise out in the form of the Son, Messiah, everyone will be able to see exactly how that is a keeping of a promise God made many, many millennia earlier. So for all that effort, for all that dedication on Moses' part, bam, out of nowhere appears this man who's even more important than Abram. But he has no beginning. I mean, you can go back in the text, you won't find any begats that show up with Melchizedek's name. And... The writer of Hebrews says he has no end of life either. And what he means, of course, is there's no genealogy chapter anywhere in Genesis that says, and Melchizedek lived blank, blank, blank years, and he died. There's no statement of his end either. He's just there, and then he's not there. That is odd. For Moses, who's so concerned with genealogies, in a book called Genesis, where's the beginning and end of this man who seems so important? The writer of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek was provided in Genesis in just this way. No beginning, no end, called a priest, called the king of righteousness, called the king of Salem, so that we would have, he says, a picture of Christ. He is a real man. He was a Jebusite king in the city of Salem. He was a man God called to be a priest in his day. 
but he was a man. Some have theorized, of course, and you may know this already, that he was not truly a man, but rather a pre-incarnate theophany, an appearance of Christ, in other words, before he actually became physical man. Well, two reasons argue against that interpretation. One is simply that the scripture itself, Hebrews itself, says he was like the Son of God, not that he was the Son of God. The like word there intentionally reflects the fact that he was pictured to be such. He was, his life was directed in such a way that we would undoubtedly look at it and say, look, that looks just like Jesus. He has these names that are like Jesus. He has this pattern that is like Jesus, this role that is like Jesus. He alone holds both position of king and priesthood at the same time. That was not possible under the Mosaic law. So this man is a forerunner of Christ. So the text says he is like, not that he is. But more importantly, more convincing to me, Hebrews also tells us that a priest must be of the same kind as the person he is interceding for. If you are to be a priest for men, you must be man. You cannot intercede on behalf of somebody you're not already a part of. That's how Christ can be our intercessor. He was born as man. But if we go back to this moment in time and say this man, this Melchizedek, he was also a priest in his day, Abram's priest, and yet it comes before Christ was made man, well, it violates the principle of priesthood. He can't be a priest for Abram in that day if he is not already man in that day. And he wasn't man until he was born of the virgin. So this man, Melchizedek, must have been a real man serving in the role of priest as priesthood require, which means he could not have been literally a vision of Christ. He must have been a picture of Christ. So Christ, like Melchizedek, has no beginning, no end. He is both priest and king. He has the same names. And as Hebrews taught, he provides a greater priesthood than the one that was given later under the law. Psalms teaches us that as well in Psalms 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, speaking to Christ, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What is so important about Melchizedek is the fact that he existed before the law. That God was calling men into the priesthood role, serving in that role, before he made the priesthood a part of the law of Moses and gave it to the nation of Israel. And therefore, the fact that Abram felt this man was his superior, and yet Abram was the one through whom you have Jacob, Israel, Aaron, and and Levi, and all the ones that come from them in the priesthood, the fact that Abram, their superior, thought Melchizedek was his superior, is the point that Hebrews makes in saying, our Lord has a greater priesthood than the one that was given through the law. Now, why is that important? Because there are still those today, even in the church, who would argue that you need priests. You need somebody who can get between you and God and help you find God, help you speak to God, minister in such a way so that you can approach God, but only through a priest. The mindset that you need some help. God doesn't hear from you directly. He only hears from you if you go through somebody. And the writer of Hebrews, arguing from the example of Melchizedek, makes the point that once our Lord sat down at the right hand of the Father, being a priest in the order of Melchizedek, the greater order, no other priesthood matters any longer. And furthermore, Peter tells us we are now all priests. We are all part of the priesthood of the believer. What he means is we all now have equal opportunity to minister to one another through a direct relationship 
with Christ, our high priest. If anyone ever suggests to you that you need to go through them to find God, then you need to preach the gospel to them because they haven't understood it yet. That is why we now approach Christ boldly by the way of our high priest. We don't go through a man. We don't go through anyone else who may call themselves priest. So back to our kings. You have Abram here greeted by two kings. Let's look at the contrast as we finish. Look at verse 19. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a sandal. A sandal. That's a combination of thread or sandal when you're trying to move fast. I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Which one does Abram choose to honor? Which king does he choose to honor with his acceptance? The king here from Sodom has essentially wanted to bribe Abram. Abram can keep the goods if he releases the people, even though Abram already had rights to both. Now how do we sum up this man? I call him a poster child for the kind of kingdom the world offers. What the world looks like when it talks about kingdoms and power. What's ironic is he's a king without any subjects. He's the emperor's clothes kind of king. But Abram is more worried. Abram is more worried about his testimony and his witness than his own well-being or wealth. He had just been blessed, if you notice, by God's high priest, and in that blessing acknowledged by the way he tithed, that God was the one who blessed him. So to the response that God makes available through his own priest, Abram turns and gives thanks. To the one from the world who comes with an offer to enrich Abram, his answer is, I want none of what the world will offer me. For I would not have the world say, it was responsible for my blessing. You see, Abram's going to be blessed regardless, because God's made that promise. The question isn't whether he will be blessed. The question is, who will get the credit for the blessing in Abram's life? He says, I have sworn to not take anything from you. So Abram says, you take it all. The only thing I'm going to keep for myself is the bit that my men have just eaten, which for obvious reasons isn't going to come back. And secondly, those who allied with me, remember he took some friends from the area where he lived and they joined forces with him to help him defeat. They are not Abram's problem. They are not sharing in his testimony. They can take whatever they want. It won't affect me at all. Let them have first pick. They did the work. So they get something. But after that, he says, I will take not even the thong off a sandal which is about as insignificant as you could get. He picks Melchizedek. As we finish, I want you to put yourself in the place of Lot for just a minute. Because though the text doesn't say this, and I have no idea if it's true or not, I like to imagine that as this conversation is taking place, Lot is standing just nearby somewhere, somewhere in earshot. And as Lot thinks about all the trouble he's caused good old Uncle Abram, and the difficulty it was for Abram to rescue him, and all the, that followed from it. And he must have reflected in that moment about how he got into that problem in the first place. And now as he stands there, he watches his uncle conspicuously saying no to the king of the city that Lot aspired to be a part of, that he longed for, that he thought was so attractive. Here is the spoils of the entire city 
being dumped in his uncle's lap, and his uncle says, I'll have none of it. For I would rather the world know whom is blessing me. And what was Lot's testimony? That he would rather have the city than have the world know who was his God. Oh, that each of us could make Abram's choice rather than Lot's. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us be Abram. Help us to be a man or a woman who listens. Help us to be the man or woman who follows. Help us to be a man or woman who concerns ourselves more with whether we testify to the truth that we know than it is, Father, that we should find success in this world. Success will come, some degree of it. You will bless us as you see fit, and we will see that, Father, as a blessing. But only if we understand, Father, that the true reward is in heaven and the true inheritance comes in the next world. And in the meantime, the most important thing, the thing you are most jealous of, is that we would be owned by one master, you. So I pray, Father, as we always do each Sunday, that what we hear would convict us, Father, to the decisions we make every day and show us the right path. Let us learn from Abram and let us learn from Lot. And if we feel, Father, as we may now in this moment, that some of our life and some of our decisions more closely match the decisions Lot has made, then I ask, Father, we would have some courage now and in future decisions to think differently about those things and to try and move in a new direction. Trusting that if you have put the conviction on our heart, then you will surely give us the means to carry it out. Let us have that faith as well. And as always, I pray, Father, that we would continue in our ministry to this part of the city and to those who gather with us so that we may be a light and a salt in this part of the world. Continue us onward in that journey to the day that our Lord returns for us. I pray this earnestly in Jesus' name. Amen.